trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Welcome back to the Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. In studio uh, here in our uh, Brooklyn studio for WBAI, uh, and if you're tuning in to hear the lovely voice of my co-host, Dr. Cassandra Raphael, she will not be in today. Um, apologies. Uh, and that music, of course, was uh, Bio, a song by uh, uh, Michael Brunn. I forget who all of his collaborators on that one are. Um, and, of course, this past weekend was the Bio Tour in Central Park. Uh, those horns that you heard, a very distinct kind of Haitian sound. Uh, there was a, a march was called a rara after the concert uh, in Central Park down Fifth Avenue. So really just uh, 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 a kind of a, a wonderful, uh, important cultural moment and experience in New York uh, that I always love to, to be present at. Um, and uh, for people who are paying attention to kind of that intersection of sports and politics also may have noticed uh, the Women's World Cup going on right now. I'm a fan, and, and the Haitian team has been overperforming uh, for a country with almost no functional institutions at this time. Uh, that women's club took the uh, previous champions, the, the English club, uh, to the wire, uh, lost one to nothing on a penalty kick, uh, sort of a, uh, an oversight, <clears throat> excuse me, um, um, one of the Haitian players, a handball in the box. Uh, and the first first uh, penalty kick was blocked, but the goalie was offline, so she got a, a second chance. And uh, uh, But uh, the goalie, uh, Theus, uh, Kelly Theus, had nine saves, really excellent game. So uh, if the Haitians can beat uh, either the Chinese or the Danish, they have a chance to advance. Also, the Jamaicans tied France. So anyway, the, the tournament going on right now, I think a lot of opportunity for excitement and surprise. Uh, so definitely tune in. Kind of every day, of, the games are like from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. But uh, if you find yourself working overnight like me, maybe you catch a break, turn on the, the TV and catch a game. Uh, and, of course, it's unse- well, perhaps not unseasonably warm, but it's hot all the way around the country. If you're tuning in on the radio, you just heard uh, our sister station news talking about the severe burns that patients in Arizona are getting from falling onto the pavement and just the time it takes to get up. Uh, off the ground, suffering severe burns. So all that contributing to my climate anxiety. I'm hoping to have Darna Noor back on the show in a couple of weeks uh, to touch back on uh, the climate crisis and what we can do about it. Um, But for today's show, I have on uh, the line a good friend, a journalist from Baltimore, Brandon Soderberg. I'm going to introduce him and and one of his articles that he wrote recently that I think is worth looking into, kind of looking at 
um, what is the data behind the police funding? Is that how does that contribute to public safety at all? So, we'll have him on in a minute. Um, before we do, I'm going to have a little musical break while we get um, set up, and that, the song is going to be uh, called Aiti Punu. If you guys uh, like that Haitian music, um, we this was a song that was on the on the schedule for one of our recent interviews with Ale Martin about his movie. Forgotten Occupation, about the U.S. Marine occupation of Haiti, 1915 to 1930. Uh, so if you're, if you're into that, definitely check out that interview from July 17th, one of our best, I think. Uh, and this is a song that we just didn't have time for, so we're going to bridge over right now while we get set up for our interview with Brandon Soderbergh. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio at WBAI. Uh, and I have on the line a good friend uh, since I started podcasting, uh, what was that, probably in 2017, uh, Brandon Soderberg, journalist uh, in Baltimore. Brandon, are you with us? Uh, yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and uh, Brandon is a, uh, and correct me, I'm, I'm going to try to give a little bit of your history as an inter introduction. I'm sure I'll get <laughs> sure. it all wrong. But a, a veteran of the Alt Weekly, kind of the the ghost of the Alt Weekly in Baltimore, the the Baltimore City paper, which was bought up and then put down by the Baltimore Sun, the the paper of record that's had its own problems. Um, and since then, you're also a founder of the Baltimore Beat, which I think is a really exciting, or one of the co-founders at least, a really exciting uh, print uh, uh, journalism outlet in Baltimore right now. Uh, and in all this time, you've had a lot of experience writing, particularly about um, music and culture, but also um, police and violence, and, and I think been a very important part of the media scene in Baltimore in general. So I just want to say I'm very uh, happy to have you. I'm very happy to have made your acquaintance years ago. One of the, the nice side effects of, of doing all these interviews is meeting and talking to people. So <laughs> thanks again for joining us, and welcome to the air in New York City. Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks for that uh, very kind interview. I'm trying over here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we all have our successes and failures, but I appreciate the work that you've put in for sure. Um, 
And uh, I, a lot of the stuff that I just mentioned, I do, I do want to talk about a little bit with you. And, and the other piece that I didn't even mention that's super important is that you co-wrote with uh, Baynard Woods, who we had on before, um, the book I Got a Monster, which I think is a really important piece uh, uh, of a book about police corruption in Baltimore, very detailed. Uh, and in fact, that there's a movie out right now that I want to get to before we finish in case there's uh, opportunities for our New York audience to catch that. Um, but the um, article that you wrote recently that you and I spoke a bit about, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to share and talk about on the air in New York City, was about looking kind of critically at police funding, particularly in Baltimore City, and how that has any relation to issues like public safety. It was a collaboration um, with, what was it called, the Data Driven Reporting Project at a Northwestern University. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then it's combined with um, there's some Google money involved, so they were sort of gave us uh, the funding to do this project, which was um, about a year long in the making. It took a long time to sort of develop all this data and analyze it, but it's basically looking at police spending as well as a lot of other police metrics for crime reduction and kind of actually interrogating the uh, crime prevention, crime reduction claims and boasts of the police in Baltimore and really seeing how they shake out because a sort of superficial look at the data uh, really started to concern me when I sort of went back to 1990. Like, like, it's one thing to look at, like, you know, we had this whole crime spike sort of canard of a couple of years ago, right, where it was like looking at, like, murders between years and then being slight increases. Um, we wanted to look at a sort of long-tail analysis, like what did Baltimore look like in 1999, 1990, 1999, et cetera, and really see where crime production crime reduction has gone or if it's, if it's been reduced very much at all. And, and the, the title of that article, correct me if I'm wrong, and there may have been multiple articles out of the same kind of work, um, is the Baltimore crime numbers game. Um, and, you know, and th in some ways what we're talking about is specific to Baltimore, so I hope our audience forgive me a little bit. And Baltimore is a city that I think, from what I saw, that for major cities spends the most per capita on the police. Um, but uh, it's not an isolated um, sort of situation. It's part of a national trend. And, of course, the experience uh, and the actions and the funding in New York very much influences what goes on um, in Baltimore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I would say is, like, you can really – if you look at this larger period of time, like, you know, ninety to 1990 to now, um, a lot of uh, Baltimore police and even city approaches to, to violence – and crime or so-called crime in some examples um, comes from New York and comes from broken windows. And we sort of did a almost like mutant uh, version, an even harsher version of um, broken windows down here in Baltimore. And we also brought a lot of commissioners and other sort of uh, uh, NYPD command to Baltimore to try to uh, repeat the so-called successes of New York, which, you know, we know with a long tail of broken windows. Well, Baltimore kind of did its own version of that entirely because, like, hey, if New York did it and it, quote-unquote, worked, why Baltimore's got to try it, too. Um, and, you know, thus, in some ways, the um, massive increase of arrests that really comes from when Baltimore sort of took the broken windows approach is what starts to really unravel some of the claims. For example, in 2003, the Baltimore police arrested about 110, made up about 110,000 arrests. That's in a city of 615,000. It's a staggering amount of arrests, mm -hmm. um, all sort of based on the idea that, like, you know, arresting people for low-level offenses is how you supposedly reduce crime, because that's sort of been the ongoing claims of what happened in New York in the 90s, although I 
think fortunately we're getting more and more people questioning that narrative or at least reminding people that there's real collateral damage when you arrest everybody uh, for anything. Right. And, you know, uh, uh, obviously there's been a lot of, of, of damage and problems in New York related to, to mass arrests. Um, but, if you know, there have been major public safety advances in the city, and that's probably why that experience was so influential uh, and, and tried to import into a city like Baltimore. So do you mind just giving us, a, in, in looking at the data and looking over the decades, uh, and, and you write that you started in 1990, I think, because of the quality of the data. One is much worse before 1990 in the city. Um, and also the uh, the violence became much worse in 1990 compared to some years before, if that's correct. But give us a sense, what, what did you find in, in your kind of retracing the history of policing and homicide in Baltimore over the last several decades? And how did, did the experience in New York influence that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we started with 1990 for those reasons you mentioned. And as well, it was the first it was the first year in a, quite a long time where the city had surpassed 300 murders, which um, has sort of for a long time been the sign that something's wrong in Baltimore. Once 300 people are killed in a single year in a city of around 600,000, that's when politicians and police command and those kind of other folks start to really uh, freak out, um, which we kind of challenged the somewhat arbitrary nature of that number it's a lot of people but it kind of creates a mindset in the baltimore police that if they can get it you know that 295 murders you keep your job 300 murders the commissioner might be out it's kind of a uh really not a great way of looking at it, which is why we call it this crime numbers game right it's, it's really a, a focus on reducing these I, I think one of the previous commissioners called it a tripwire yeah reason. yeah exactly like you, yeah if you're a commissioner and you hit 300 homicides you can't bring it down you're gone this has been sh- shown to be true in in the city for a while anyway um so what we what i and really what's happened since 2015 in baltimore is there's been like a pronounced almost now decade-long crime spike which you know isn't really a crime spike anymore but that's sort of the language it needs to be used that like we surpassed 300 murders from 2015 to now every year we probably will probably get around 300 might get under a tiny bit this year we'll see um but that number sort of dominates all policy, and we really tried to unpack that number and then also look at if there was any sort of efficacy in terms of police approaches in contrast to, like, spending, which um, police spending in Baltimore pretty much, like, continue, has continued to always increase since 1990. And, yeah, and we spend about, at this point, about $1,000 per person on policing, if you break it down that way, between population and budget. The police budget for next year was just approved at $594 million. Um, so we're trying to sort of see what's working, what's not. Um, and the main way of looking at that was trying to say, like, okay, well, in the 90s, homicides were in the 300s, and they did this, and it reduced slightly, and then it's come back. And so when you really look at this period, you have a, ni- a period of the 90s where homicides are very, very high, over 300. You have this middle period where homicides are a little under 200, under 300, and then one time they get under 200, which is the only time it's really happened in the past 30 years. And then the idea was to sort of question, okay, well, you, here are the metrics the police use. They say that, um, you know, making arrests uh, is how you do it. So you can see that when they arrest a lot of people, it doesn't necessarily have a correlation or a causation at all between uh, a, you know violence being reduced. Um, years where there's been way more arrests and way less arrests. For example, we're about twenty twenty five thousand arrests in the city right now with the mur- three hundred plus murders. In the nineties, the city was arresting about. 
60,000 people a year and we had 300 murders. And in this sort of broken windows period, we were making about 100,000, almost double the amount of rest at times and reducing the murder murder numbers by maybe like 20 or so. So the question becomes like, what's there's got to be a better way to do this, right, than like, uh, you know, spending a ton of money on this and then sort of slightly really overstating and over amplifying these slight reductions in violence, which play well to the media and play well towards election to, towards getting reelected and those sorts of things. So it's sort of um, looking at these metrics of police use. They care about they cite, cite murders, non-fatal shootings as the most important thing. So we kind of looked at that and they looked at that against spending and other metrics and kind of tried to get a sense of what worked and what hasn't. The simple answer, which is maybe not uh, a surprise, is that sort of there's none of these are working. That even if you look at one of Baltimore's more successful years of crime reduction, which is 2011, where violence was down to 196 murders, incredibly low, that's still, given the population of the city, that's still a murder rate of over 30 per 100,000 people, which is incredibly high. Mm -hmm. So even when Baltimore's made any sort of like victories, they're really negligible. And we tried to stress that only because there's become this myth that these certain strategies worked really well. And, we're and what our data really showed is that none of them have worked particularly well at all. It's never really gotten towards any degree of real uh, reduction in crime since the 90s. And, and I know one of the things that was sort of popular in New York and, and um, imported into Baltimore was trying to use the statistics and the data to inform policing, this idea of CompStat or CrimeStat. Mm -hmm. And um, while I, I'm definitely in support of, of uh, evidence-based practices and, and data-driven practices, what we know in statistics and research is uh, one of the problems is the more importance you put on a particular statistic in terms of evaluation, especially incentives you put on for results for a certain um, statistic, the less reliable it becomes because people start manipulating the statistics for their own benefit. Um, and, I, and I think that's maybe part of what you're getting at. Part of what happens in Baltimore is the statistics um, become very unreliable, even just in terms of what is an arrest measure? What is a gun seizure measure? What do these things actually measure and how are they being used by the, the police who, who are creating the statistics? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really important that these sort of stats have become sort of uh, the single focus of different departments. And the and the focus they care about has shifted. In the 90s, it was about clearing homicides, um, you, know, you know, clearance rate. And our clearance rate, the city's clearance rate in the 90s was very, very high. And yet murders were also very high. So that sort of starts to undo a really common argument that's really been resurrected since the publication of a book called Ghetto Side um, that really gets cited a lot. They're like, hey, if you solve murders, then the community trusts the police more and there's less violence. They've, that's been argued before, but it's certainly not the case in Baltimore. That's complicated in Baltimore by the fact that the sort of infamous 90s homicide squad uh, were guys who were setting people up, lying, forcing confessions and things like that. So you have to start questioning that clearance rate number if we we're solving the police were allegedly solving 70% of the murders. Um, how how uh, effective was that number? And then what you see since then is a massive decline in the clearance rate. It's down to about 40 to 35% these days. So they're solving less than half the homicides. And again, we have a lot of murders. But again, we had a lot of murders in the 90s when they were solving homicides. So it's literally this, you question these focus. The drug arrest thing is kind of the best example because it's very easy, or just arrest in general, to find reasons to arrest it. One thing I always go back to, 
There's a police officer I spoke to for this piece, uh, sort of all, half off the record. I'll quote him by saying his thing was like he was a former commander. And he was like, look, if you tell cops to go out there and arrest everybody with, um, you know, uh, purple sneakers they'll bring back people with purple sneakers all day every day it has nothing to do with they sort of the singular focus on finding and salt and executing the mission is often increasingly separate from actually what decreases violence and the 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 focus sort of shifts along with an electoral cycle and other things that make it really hard for there to be any sort of uh, consistency or, or reliability of these strategies strategies that i I think that our data shows are really ineffective as well. But on top of that, they're threatened with shifting commissioners, shifting mayors, election cycles, all these things that make it very hard to commit to a crime reduction plan in a city with a staggering amount of violence. And and I think one of the lessons from I Got a Monster that you wrote is that the, the squad that was sort of the all-star of the gun seizure, um, the gun trace task force, at a time where you know putting guns on the table had kind of supplanted putting drugs on the table in terms of you know, making arrests and, and seizures and, and having uh, press conferences and things. That Gun Trace Task Force was just rampant criminality, planting guns and things like that, and at the same time were the all-stars of the department. Um, so just showing that the, the how tricky it is uh, using these metrics as evaluation if, if it's not done um, with a kind of seriousness about what the ultimate uh, importance is about public safety. Um, and, and to your point about the, the kind of shifting kind of unstable ground underneath your writing this. It feels like from you writing the intro to you writing the conclusion of the article, things had changed, you know, in that time. You, there's like a different commissioner when you finish. Uh, actually, a deputy commissioner in the beginning of the piece becomes like the next commissioner by the end of the piece. Um, and, and you write, I think it's been 15, he becomes the 16th commissioner of Baltimore City since, you know, in the time period that you describe. So what, a lot has changed even, you know, since you started and since you finished writing that piece kind of like a month ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of a year-long project then got, like, quickly remixed into the end of May, into June when it was published simply because there was more turnover in the police department. Uh, commissioner Michael Harrison, who was the commissioner, announced he was stepping down in the middle of June. He would be, like, he's currently being replaced by an acting commissioner, a sort of police veteran, um, so that happened while the I was sort of finishing this up, but it also kind of, um, in the worst way, was perfect timing in the sense that it really just illustrated our point of the story, which is like there's just a rapid amount of dysfunction and shifting around of people, and then the strategies always have to change, right? Because it's I mean this is where like the way that policing works is like a job that's both completely unaccountable in many ways but like profoundly accountable to certain other people is that uh you get in office and then you have to make changes because if you do the same thing the other guy does then um you're not going to keep your job it's a re and, I, and police I, I stress this like this thing that like police and former commanders have told me they just hate like you know if you believe that policing is a way to reduce violence. Um, I'm not convinced, but if you do believe that, well, you can certainly agree that like having like ostensibly a commissioner shift every few years is really not good for developing any sort of sense of continuity. So that's a big part of it. And that um, what you also see in the piece, I think, is how flimsy, you kind of already alluded to this, but like how flimsy and shifting the data is. For example, the number of gun seizures, this number they sort of focus on, 
sort of increases and decreases depending on the meeting. So, you know, I recently, you know, at the beginning, they somehow discovered 400 more gun seizures between a January hearing and another hearing. It's for last year. Like, these numbers should be easy to find. There should be, you know, I guess the big thing I even, we didn't even get to, besides like, okay, the Baltimore police are, ter- are deeply, profoundly corrupt and not very good at solving murders or stopping crime, is that they're also under a federal consent decree because of the, uh, the police killing of Freddie Gray. So they're sort of being boosted as like this sort of technological development, developing uh, uh, department. And instead, they're bad at data data gathering, they're data, bad at citing data, they're not great at going to a meeting and even giving the city council a straight answer on like what the clearance rate is. Um, the clearance rate in one meeting went from 14% until everyone's like, that's insane, how could it be that low, to, oh, actually that was a mistake, and they said it was 39, and then a, a week or so later, the commissioner changed the number again. Like, if the number's changing that much, we shouldn't focus on it, and if they're just sort of throwing something at the wall, then that's a problem too, and I just see that a lot. Like, that's that's where I'll be my most sort of editorialized. I just think it's a profoundly dysfunctional department on every level, including like organizationally and how they gather data and how they cite data and how they provide data. And yet there's, it's sort of framed as a very data oriented, uh, you know, developing uh, department. That's the future, future of policing because of its like reliance on data and technology and this consent decree that sort of facilitates that. But in reality, like I, I haven't. I can't really get a straight no- answer from the police on how many arrests they made last year. Like that's an incredibly easy, tangible number. I've been given. I've given, been given at least three different numbers. Right. That's just like completely. I mean, that's unacceptable, right? Like that's just like a basic metric that the police in the city can't even give people anymore. Right, and I, and I think we've gotten to kind of the profound dysfunction of the police department. And um, in some ways, like, like I said, it's a local story. But then again, shortly after you wrote this piece, it was a national headline, right? That there was thirty people shot um, mm-hmm. during this Brooklyn Day uh, party uh, in South Baltimore. T- uh, two young people were killed. Um, and I think it was the Baltimore Brew has done some reporting since then looking at, uh, you know, publicly kind of available communications, which are now being increasingly encrypted, um, between the police that, that basically betrays their complete absence. And, and I interpret that, although some people disagree with me, the complete absence from the city in this neighborhood um, celebration to the point where it got out of control and 30 Peters there were. It just seems like completely out of control and the police we're just completely absent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think this is kind of a really interesting example of when the police really fail by their own metrics, which is to say that, like, so there was this large party in sort of a South Baltimore part of the city around the county line, about a thousand people, kind of a blah, summer block party on the week, the week of Fourth of July. It's something that happens in a lot of cities, happens a lot. Um, and the police, and it's sort of, somehow the police claim they weren't aware the party was happening. It's happened before and that the police weren't really present at all um, when, you know, they would certainly be present if that sort of gathering was in a uh, more uh, sort of uh, whiter part of the city or a more sort of touristy spot of the city. But the sort of really damning stuff, yeah, the Baltimore Brew and the Baltimore Sun, especially I thought both did really good work on this, which was just listening to the police scanner and sure up hearing cops saying, like, we're not going in there. We're not. You, we, you, thousand people, we hear there's some guns in there. We're not going in there. So, again, um, that's, like, just staggering to me, especially among a consent decree, that, like, we have a police department that's seven years into a consent decree 
still can't sort of do the basic policing. Right. Um, and that, and then I think the other thing to just really stress there is like their claim is like they didn't know about this um, party, which has happened before. But I bring this up because like this is like basic familiarity with your community, right? Like cops are if, if like these are all the claims the police make themselves that like hey we need to get in the community we need to talk to people and that's how we learn things and that's how we understand the community that's how we you know help reduce violence or just know what's going on like we can be better police if we sort of engage the community where this is clearly an example where the cops can't even don't even know a party that a thousand people came to is happening an, like an annual part an annual party for decades right yes it seems like yeah, someone's yeah. just going like, and, hey tony can you ask so and so when that thing is going to happen this year so you know, we can, yeah, right. And you would think, yeah, can you set would lights think that up, part, you know what I mean? We can like hand yeah. out waters and just be present. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that and like, yeah. And so and, and like and then like the description was like from the new deputy commissioner or new commissioner, Warley acting commissioner was like, you know, we have our social media intelligence folks and they just didn't know this was happening. It's like. Just walk around and ask people what's happening. Someone will tell you. Like, you know, like it's just it's incredible. It's really shocking. And, and then the story became, well, this party wasn't permitted. So you can sort of already see, even though this is such a like glaring national headline making like a failure of policing, they're already trying to sort of pivot to like, well, we didn't know our intelligence needed to be better. Uh, we didn't know, um, you know, some we, you know, how are we supposed to know what we're supposed to do? And also, you know, they didn't even have a permit. And it's like, that's not, that's like a massive deflection that the police are very good at doing. Um, and, and, but yeah, there's just, sorry. Well, no, I was going to say, and, and again, I, I, in some ways, this is a, a story about a dysfunctional police department. But in another way, I, th I think that in, similarly to the profound failure in Uvalde of the police to engage somebody with an automatic weapon. I think when everybody is armed uh, with potentially a higher firepower than the police, then policing becomes untenable. And I think this, um, you know, this is a particularly dysfunctional department, but I think this is a national problem where if, you know, a thousand people are armed and a situation gets out of control, th that's not really manageable by any uh, municipal agency. Yeah, that's true. And Baltimore is in a very, I mean, I'm sure this is true of other cities and like, you know, New York. Is, has a similar issue of being like adjacent to or surrounded by states where it's easier to get guns. And um, I think that my book and my reporting have made me really suspicious of like the policing of guns in general, but it's sort of just inarguable that there's like way too many guns going on. And like in Baltimore, we just are surrounded by states. You know, I've, I've talked to people that would come into the city and sell their guns for drugs and things like that. It creates this like, yeah. And then of course, when the police fail to keep people safe, um, you know, when the clearance rate is 36%, I don't think that necessarily, I don't think there's a way for the police to necessarily fix that trust. But I do know that that's when people feel unsafe and they start to carry guns. Um, so, yeah, this all sort of builds and builds and builds into a situation where, like, yeah, like, how would, what would the police have done when there's a crowd of a thousand people that sort of, and some of those people have guns? I'm not sure what yeah, would be the solution. And they're shooting at each other, yeah. And I, yeah. I think it gets back to the idea of the gun seizures, or even these gun buybacks, I think, don't make any sense if you can as easily replace the guns as you can go out and, you know, get a new hat or get a, you know, a new bag. Um, yeah. I don't, the only place where those make any sense, like in, in Australia where they banned um, automatic weapons and assault rifles, then the buybacks made sense. You get rid of the excess guns that cannot easily be replaced. Um, so, uh, again, just, just 
questioning that the whole metric of gun seizures when when guns are as easy to get you know as as a case of beer yeah it's it's i mean the, this is again sure if anyone's ever heard me blab about this before i've heard this say but like we basically just police guns the way we used to police drugs exactly. in cities and it's created the same exact i mean you know uh mayor adams in new york really loves these gun units too he's all about them he loved he wanted to have he, i don't know if this actually got enacted but he was proposing sort of like checkpoints ready to go through and be searched for guns like this is this is this is a new metric. You'll see so many police departments across the country citing their gun seizures as like, "Hey, we're doing something." And you really need to see that as like the same as a bag of like a small baggie of crack. Hey, we see you know we know there's more crack or cocaine or drugs out there. We know there's more guns out there. I mean, I think something like thirty to forty thousand new guns are cycling through Baltimore City every year. That's just a staggering amount of guns. I mean. I, you know this better than I do, but like I know even as a kid, I knew where guns were stuffed, stashed, where kids, you know what I mean? Just like it's a city rife with guns, and there's not really a you can't police your way out of that problem. Um, and the other thing I would say, if it's okay, would be that like I think the other problem with that, the shooting and the shooting that happened, the police's role is like. We have also created a situation where we're trying to, and this is true in New York, too. I think it's another thing we've actually picked up from uh, Mayor Adams over there, which is uh, some real focus on um, low-level and quality-of-life offenses and sort of ramping that stuff up. So you create a really toxic situation where a year ago, a lot of things that people are doing at a party, the city wasn't prosecuting anymore so open container or smoking weed or having things that people do at parties right it's a normal party thing but you know like but we can't we have a situation where the police can't sort of just be present like like mm-hmm. i think I, I feel like an, a, a sensible approach with something like this where there's a huge party is the police are there in case something goes out of control but they're not going to spend their time uh you know, policing people for open container, or they're not going to run their facial recognition software at a, at a at a at a block party and try to arrest people, or check on Instagram and try to arrest people. So, like, there's also this central trust that I think that if an agreement between the police and a community, a small community, could be like, "Hey, we're here in case anything goes on. Otherwise, don't worry about us." Would be function like be reasonable. But I also know that you have this other rhetoric, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point, which is like, you know, that if people saw the cops there if the fox news type saw the cops there that weren't like busting dudes for open container or some kid with a joint which doesn't matter you know that that would be seen as a failure of the police or something as well so we've kind of created this untenable situation that the only thing i know is that introducing the police into these situations is not going to fix them we need to find some other way to do this and there's and I mean, how could police that didn't know this party was going on then suddenly be able to have any sort of degree of, um, you know, capital I intelligence in the police gathering sense of intelligence mm-hmm. to know what was going on or how it was going to function? There's no way for them to do that if they didn't even know what's happening because right. they're just so profoundly disconnected from the communities they police. Right. Um, and the other kind of fallout uh, about that, and, and some of these, again, these are kind of local issues, but I really think it's part of a national phenomenon. Um, is that you know there has been some increased investment in Baltimore on anti-violence initiative, mm-hmm. like the Safe Streets that has come out of this uh, kind of the, the original ceasefire uh, work, and I forget the, the name that is rebranded now. Um, uh, that has also been uh, used in New York, uh, and the fact that a couple of these Safe Streets people in their free time showed up for a couple of hours at this party and then went home was seized upon by. Um, particularly 
Fox 45 News in Baltimore, and, and that's part of uh, Sinclair Broadcasting, again, mm-hmm. a national phenomenon, to really try to say that somehow the anti-violence initiatives were the problem, were the reason why this violence happened. And you've written before in some of your work about how the Baltimore City Police Department had gone after safe streets. And uh, Do you have any other thoughts on, on seeing that phenomenon of an organized attempt to destroy community-based violence interventions? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I think that one thing to say is like, while, um, you know, there's plenty of things that the police have taken from New York that were they that were unwise um, in Baltimore, there is a I've noticed there's a real continuity between community violence prevention and interruption and things like that up in New York and in Baltimore. I've seen folks from New York down here and Definitely. there's been a couple events that where that's happened. Um, so there's also that that's another that's a, that's a better exchange of ideas about actually generating peace and really reducing violence. I think the thing I would say is that, yeah, so the gotcha kind of became, well, there are safe streets workers at this block party. Why didn't they stop it? And, um, you know, especially on this show, like, um, it's really important to stress that what the heck violence interruption is and how it operates. And this claim that it's just another arm of the police is deeply incorrect. And the idea is, like, by the time there's violence happening at a party, that is not the job of like violence interruption anymore. And so I think whether it's uh, Sinclair or there's a new sort of uh, pretty large scale online startup here called the Baltimore Banner, who I thought ran some of the worst coverage of this safe mm. street stuff, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of what violence interruption is. Because, again, the reporters themselves <laughs> often talk to cops. I think that I think that there's no way a story like that that was like there were some safe streets workers there. They didn't do anything was not coming from police officers who are mad. And that's for a few reasons. The first reason is they're looking to deflect blame. The second reason is that, like, safe streets, community violence and interruption, all this stuff is an existential threat to the idea of, like, American policing as we understand it. Like, if these guys can do what the police can't do, then it really shows the, like, you know, like 5% of the budget. Right. And it's people in the community that have credibility in the community and know the community and did know there was a block party there, uh, obviously, because they were present. Um, that is an existential threat to the police and how they work. And they have sought to uh, sabotage community violence prevention workers in every aspect. I've reported on this. They've planted drugs on them. They've planted guns on them. And they often plant stories in the news or they go to the FOP, the police union takes to the Twitter or wherever else to say that these sort of the safe streets model is corrupt and fake because, you know, the workers previously had a history of violence, which is precisely why they're there for it. I mean, the one thing I always stress with violence interruption is that it's taking this public health approach. And as a result, it is looking at the violence very differently than police and like police are themselves infected with the same violence that the people they're trying to stop from violence happening. I mean, the police department in Baltimore is profoundly violent, profoundly corrupt. So you have these sort of people caught up in the same cloud of violence as the people that are they're trying to stop. It's an untenable situation, and the community violence prevention is a very good like way of meeting in the middle and circumventing the sort of ways that police can screw up uh, communities and create more chaos and as a result of that the police are very scared and frustrated and love to expose these guys or set them up which is what has happened in Baltimore multiple times like just straight up 
putting weapons or putting drugs on people, which as a result of shutting down that program briefly, et cetera, et cetera, gets dinged in the news. This is a real concerted effort that I think reporters in general, no matter how sort of both sides and fair they want to be to everybody, need to understand what safe streets and violence interruption actually is versus what they think it is and understand the relationship between the police and about community violence interruption is often one that's pretty fractious um, uh, and more fractious than I think even the community violence interrupters are really comfortable articulating all the time. And if you're just joining us on Trauma Code, we're talking with Brandon Soderberg uh, about uh, his recent piece on the funding of the Baltimore Police Department and how that inner uh, influences at all public safety. Um, we're going to take a little musical break uh, in a minute uh, with uh, a song from uh, the uh, movie Dark City Beneath the Beat, the song Hey Baltimore, uh, with featuring a, a friend of the show, a friend of mine, probably a friend of yours, Easy Jackson. Yes. Uh, let's <laughs> see, Reggie, do you have that uh, ready to queue up? And we'll come back in a minute. St. James Infirmary That's where I found my baby there She was stressed out on a long white table So sweet, so cold, so fair Let her go, let her go, let her go Baltimore with Rufus Roundtree and Eric Jackson. And um, we have on the line from Baltimore, uh, Brandon Soderberg. We've been talking about uh, Baltimore police. And one of, the, uh, one of the works of yours that I'm kind of proudest about that I've enjoyed reading the most, it's a couple years old now, but the I Got a Monster, uh, a book about the um, Gun Trace Task Force, really uh, rampant, really unbelievable corruption based in the Baltimore Police Headquarters downtown. Basically, uh, an armed criminal enterprise uh, involved in uh, robbery, extortion, uh, kidnapping, planting of evidence. Um, and I don't want to get into all those details on the air right now because uh, we've done that before and there's a little bit of limited time. Um, but uh, you also, there's a, a, a documentary piece that came out um, 
not too long ago um, that's available right now to watch. Do you want to talk at all about that work that you've done, uh, you know, particularly the film that, that people can go out and find right now? Sure, yeah. So it made orient people further, just like the best way to look at, uh, you know, the past 30 years of policing is that the 90s was dominated by a since shown to be profoundly corrupt homicide detective unit that was forcing confessions and doing all kinds of other things. You then have a period of mass arrest. And then out of that mass arrest comes the idea that we're going to stop mass arresting people for everything. We're going to target, do targeted arresting in the form of looking at guns. And they create this uh, unit called the Gun Trace Task Force, which its job was to sort of seize guns. That job sort of became exploited by them to get access to people's homes, cars, and pockets, and steal and rob. Um, the book kind of tells that story intercut between the police and their victims, which me and my co-writer Bannon spent a lot time with, and then also the defense attorneys who represented the victims, kind of the first people to realize how extensive this criminal enterprise within the police department was. The documentary, I Got a Monster, um, kind of was made along with the book. We're, some of the things you see in the book are literally like the interviews we did for the book, just they were filmed. And it tells the story primarily through uh, a defense, defense attorney, especially Ivan Bates, who was the defense attorney then, now is actually state's attorney. And we get a um, whole episode about that itself. But, uh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's sort of turned very I mean, speaking of eric adams he's gone very eric adams style uh, approach i think um which is very kind of shocking but anyway um and other defense attorneys who were representing these people so the movie kind of focuses even more on the victims um and really lets them tell their story and this is stories of like robbery uh kidnapping of a couple uh and things like that and you sort of get it from their perspective and so the documentary and the book are reflect the same things in structure but they both sort of accentuate different things and i'm very excited and happy that the documentary is out and people can see it and experience it and really hear directly from the people i mean the the, the film really kind of slows down lets you hear these really terrible stories of police uh brutality and violence and theft um it's it's played in it was playing in la a week or so ago so it might eventually show up in new york we'll see i was i was really um, looking forward to a new york theatrical release so it, it might happen it would be great um but um if not it's still currently on you know you can buy it for a few bucks and rent it on amazon or apple and things like that and then i'm sure eventually we go to streaming like conventional streaming but um i think it's a really good um companion to the book and i think it also makes the points of the book uh, even louder and clearer, and I think in some ways even more sort of intensely in terms of it's one thing to read the words of these of these victims of police violence. It's another thing entirely to see it in front of you and hear these people telling their stories. And it's really amazing that people spent their so much time with us and trusted us to tell these you know tell the worst moment of their lives in so many ways. Um, you know, especially because a lot of these the setup for this was to try to put this on people with past criminal records and things like that so that they would not be believed when they were robbed. And so uh, it's really means a lot that people in Baltimore were able to stand, like sort of stand up and say like, this happened to me. And it's uh, really amazing that people are, were willing to tell that story in the documentary. It's really an attempt to sort of tell this story from the defense attorneys who figured it out and the victims who, you know, experienced this as opposed to sort of seeing it as a, story just about the cops or about a 
a, a sort of crisis of trust within Baltimore. It's like, you know, it's like a criminal enterprise operating within the police department that was a robbery crew right. that created violence, caused violence, and caused deaths in some cases. One of the things, and I'm not going to spend too long on this, but one of the things that I found most shocking about that whole story is there's a uh, young Moose who was a, a, a hip-hop artist from East Baltimore who had been targeted by some of these uh, corrupt police officers, literally wrote a song calling out the corrupt officers by name in 2014. And yeah. so it still took how many years before anybody in a position of authority even listened to that or took any of that seriously? Yeah, like every, it was like like it was a very open secret that these guys were bad, especially a few cops in particular. Um, and yet it took, you know, years. I mean, a year, a year after that, D. Watkins, a great writer from Baltimore, wrote about Moose and also mentioned this. I know for a fact that, like, people in internal affairs read that story, that D. Watkins story, and yet nothing was done even then. So, yeah, the sort of, it's not even enough to, you have, not it's not enough to shout it out. It's not enough to have a real serious fan base. Even that sort of thing isn't enough for the Baltimore Police Department to reflect or consider maybe they should look into these guys. And, again, there's ways that this is a local story, but I've just been listening recently to a podcast about police corruption in New York, particularly in Brooklyn and Crown Heights in particular, um, and in Harlem in the 1990s called The Set. And mm -hmm. part of that story was about how internal affairs was in on the corruption to make sure that the department was protected rather than the communities that were being violated by corrupt police. So, you know, those stories, if we don't pay attention to them, they're going to come back on us one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. And, and the internal affairs regularly protected the cops in uh, in Baltimore as well, the ones we're talking about. Like, this is a very sort of one of the roles of internal affairs I think is to sort of look as if something's being changed when very little is being changed or nothing at all. Well we're bumping up against the end of the hour but um, there was one other uh, project of yours that I wanted to give a moment to shout out which was the, sure. ba the Baltimore Beat and you know you've handed this off it's, it's run by other people it's, it's a print uh, media has an online presence uh, it's uh, well. You can tell us what makes the in a, you know in, in less than a minute what makes the beat so important. <laughs> where can people find it and how can they support it? Yeah, the Baltimore Beat is a paper that I help sort of start and and fundraise for. Um, but it's it's uh, it's primarily a print newspaper comes out every other week right now. I'm sort of a community based or alt weekly style newspaper um, that is black run and and and, and black uh, and black led and um, it's uh, it's nonprofit right now. It's it's its own 501c3 so they rely on donations for people like the people listening and also in grants and stuff like that but um, it's a really important way of trying to create some sort of like community based uh, and like black facing news organization news organization in this city like something that's not uh, sort of caught up in the sort of expectations of journalism and is run and organized and accountable to the black uh, black Baltimore which is a city that's 63 percent and does not have enough black run newsrooms right and, and Lisa Snowden who heads it now also has some experience yes. in the afro so I see it as part of that tradition um, of, yes and that's of sort of Lisa's view on it for sure yeah so definitely everyone out there, check out the Baltimore Beat. Go online, read it, support it. Um, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Brandon, anything else you want to say as we get ready to wrap up? Yeah, I guess I'll just pitch to support the Baltimore Beat at BaltimoreBeat.com. Give them some money. And, uh, and uh, think about police spending in your city because it's probably also pretty uh, egregiously bad. And what are the alternatives? 
Um, yeah. And as we wrap up the show, I wanted to end with a, a little song by uh, Tony Bennett, one of his collaborations with Lady Gaga, with the late Tony Bennett. And I think this sort of forgotten history of his presence in the civil rights struggle, including on the Selma to Montgomery march um, in the 1960s. Um, and, you know, we can't forget that, that history and that work that's been put in. Uh, and so if you're listening to us on WBAI, thanks for joining us on the Trauma Code. Definitely don't forget to support us. Uh, uh, at WBAI.org or on the pledge line at 212-209-2950. Give to WBAI.org. Thank you for joining us on the Trauma Code. Love is funny or it's sad or it's quiet or it's mad it's a good thing it's bad but beautiful beautiful to take a chance and if you fall you fall and I'm thinking For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Here are some headlines for this hour.